What is shaking, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Wind Up Podcast. I am your host, Mike Anderson of MTGA Wines, and we are doing our March Q&A today. Uh, we're going to dive into a few questions that we've received uh, both in the cellar as we've been hosting guests for tasting as well as just comments and DMs over the last couple of weeks and see how far we get. I think I have about five in total. Uh, we'll try and keep this you know, right around that uh, 30 or 45 minute mark as is tradition for our episodes. And if we have time to cover all of them, we will. If not, I'll try and save some for a later date. Um, I do know that some of these things we may carry over into actually full episodes. Uh, and others are a little bit more quicker, like easier going type stuff. So uh, we'll see what we can do. I, As always, I'm super excited to get into some of this because some of it relates to other episodes that we've already posted. Others are kind of going to be teasers for what's going to come down the pipeline with episodes that we're going to do. And there's actually kind of just a fun, simple, silly one in this lineup as well. So without further ado, let's get into it. Uh, now, I mentioned a couple episodes ago, uh, this would have been in the winemaker's opinion on additives. That would have been episode six, uh, posted earlier in March. Uh, this was, I insinuated that there was a, a potential for uh, some Cabernet to spoil uh, based on the higher pH level and potential volatile acidity issues um, and VA that was going to be at an elevated level in that wine. Uh, so the question is, if a wine is spoiling, for example, turning to vinegar, as you mentioned, uh, can you fix it or does that wine just spoil and go bad? This is a great question to get into because I definitely insinuated that it was like a risk of either this wine going bad or not with the addition that I had to do to make sure that that wine was stable at a chemical level. And what's interesting is that, no, it's not necessarily gonna go bad because you can remove VA and volatile acidity through filtering. Now, the trick with that is that when you use some of those heavier filtering practices and procedures, you lose other stuff within the wine because the filters don't discriminate. It's not like the filter's only going to focus on the VA and just remove that. There's gonna be other stuff you have to worry about. So uh, I want to look this up real quick and dive into it. So first of all, removing VA is difficult, uh, but you want to filter the wine to stabilize the acetic acid level. Blending can also be an option. Uh, typically, the sensory threshold for VA, this is a little nerdy, might be, it's like somewhere around like 0.6, like 0.9 grams per liter. And I believe the legal limit for it is like 1.2, I think. 1.2 uh, in that. Um, really, I mean, it's it's something that you want to avoid because I mean, it's it's gonna create off flavors, off aromas. I mean, a lot of natural wines kind of have high VA problems. So if they kind of have a, like an acidic, like vinegary kind of thing, um, it's, it's possible that that level of that is relatively high and it's a, past that century threshold and you notice it a little bit more. Um, so let's go ahead and bring this up real quick. This is actually um, a service that is for reducing VA. I'm gonna, for those of you that are watching the video on YouTube, uh, you're not necessarily gonna see this if you're listening to, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but let me remove this real quick. 
Um, so this little section right over here, um, this is a VA Filtration USA. Uh, they're a place that offers all kinds of services um, and filtering. It's not just VA filtration. They do a lot of stuff. And actually, it's really interesting and kind of impressive um, what, what they can do with filters these days. Um, but basically, you go through, uh, the wine goes through a HP diaphragm pump through a separation process where concentrated wine comes out of one side and the acid, basically the rest of it goes into a cylinder where that acetic acid is absorbed. And then that deacidified permeate, we call it, stream comes out, it's mixed back in with the concentrate and then recombined with 25 to 30%. It says it can, they can remove about 25 to 30% of the VA um, after the reduction. So it's, uh, it's some pretty cool stuff. Um, you can remove it. Um, I have worked in and around wines that have had VA removal and that, you know, potentially could have had the, uh, you know, kind of on the verge of not necessarily like on the verge of spoiling, but they have a high VA level and you need to filter it. And the thing is, is the wines taste good afterwards. They taste just fine, but they seem to be like just a little flatter. Like they're just not uh, that's the best way I can describe it. And I think that's just a factor of the filtering process and removing the VA amongst other things as you're filtering. Um, you can lose other stuff as a part of that filtration process. And that's something that is always, I think, this debate within the wine industry of do you filter? Do you have to filter everything? Or if you don't, quote unquote, need to filter, can you avoid it? Because do you not want to lose certain things? Um, and some folks are like, nope, we just got to make sure we filter all the time. There are certain factors that uh, will basically force you into filtering, uh, such as a high VA level, perhaps, or if there's sugar remaining in your wine. Uh, those are reasons why you would filter your wine more often than not. If your wine doesn't go through uh, ML, the malactic conversion, uh, you would likely do some filtering on top of that as well. Um, and if you do filter, then you're going you just have to understand that you're going to lose some of these other things. So, um, I know that got a little bit further down the rabbit hole probably than we needed to go, but with like a high VA or basically removing anything from a wine, there are all kinds of things you can do. Um, VA removal is one of them. You can cross flow filter, you can sterile filter, you can pad filter, you can do different fining techniques, uh, that remove certain things from the wine. There's basically a lot of other stuff. So, uh, this is one of those questions where we are definitely going to dive into that in more detail and we're going to really get into more of not just like finding agents but like filtering practices maybe pros and cons there are a handful of wines that i have filtered previously uh, and i can explain all the reasons of why we do that uh, in another episode so likely next week um, we're going to tackle filtration and kind of what that means the different options that we have available and kind of the pros and maybe cons between them uh, just you know as best we can so a uh, very good question so the good news is, is that if you do have a wine that has issues and maybe ha may have some sort of spoilage or potential spoilage considerations um, or things of certain numbers like high acetic acid and high va are there and you want to remove it you can through a filtration process and not risk your wine having issues later on down the road. It's kind of a nice thing. So great question. I definitely insinuated that like the, the wine was going to be it, like not saved if we uh, didn't do that. But I don't. It's, it came down to you for me in making that decision. Do I risk losing complexity and flavor and you know really having 
a, na a more negative impact on the wine long term by not stabilizing it up front? Um, or do I stabilize it up front and, you know, try and prevent myself from having to do, you know, a, a what I would consider a harsher, you know, filtration uh, process to stabilize my wine later. So uh, I was really trying to be as proactive as I could, uh, as I mentioned in episode six, um, regarding how we worked with our Cabernet uh, in the 2022 vintage. And really that was based on trying not to have to filter it and stabilize it later. It was like, let's do this stuff now and be preventative and then bet that we're not going to have problems down the road. So really, really good question to kick things off today. I love it. All right. Uh, now, oh, this is a great one too. So how are all the winter storms going to affect the 2023 harvest? You guys have had fires in the last few years. Now you're getting a deluge of moisture. What are you going to do and how are you guys going to cope with all these weather issues? Um, you know, the fires, you brought up the fires. I mean, the fires are kind of, th this kind of is a, this might be kind of a, a weird thing to say, but the fires, I, I, I do believe are kind of an, an anomaly. You know, you have, and, th and this is looking at kind of the grand scale of time and what has swept through this area in recent history. Now, we had the fires in 2017, we had more in 2020, you know, there's a lot of news about uh, issues in other parts of California and, and on the West Coast with fires that are sweeping through in the last few years. And realistically, you know, there's still a lot of research being done. There's things that we're trying to do to mitigate the potential for smoke issues and whatnot. Um, but that's, I don't know, it's two years out of the last 10, out of the last 20, out of the last 30, out of the last 40, isn't a trend to me. And obviously we want, we want fire prevention and I, and I don't want to diminish the severity of what happened in the area over the last couple of years, but two rough fire seasons in my lifetime out here does not cause me to be concerned for anything realistically, even though that is something that's, I do worry about it. We think about it. We're trying to, you know, mitigate fire damage and work on fire abatement strategies and what can we do to prevent these things from happening down the road. We're definitely being conscientious of it but it's something that's like if if this happens twice in 50 years 20 years like like how how often does it have to happen to really become a concern and like an actual trend um realistically having two really tough fire seasons within a short period of time isn't a trend to me but it is something that's a cause for concern i hope that makes sense when it comes to the fires so i wanted to get that out of the way um because that's I think that's just kind of how you have to look at it and, you know, hope for the best when it comes to that. Cause that's definitely something that, you know, once those get ripping and if it's high winds and they're moving fast, there's really not a whole lot you can do personally. So you just have to hope for the best uh, when it comes to the fires. Now, when we have what seems like the exact opposite in this winter where we're getting dumped on with rainfall, I mean, the good thing is, is that early in the season, the vines are dormant. They're not doing anything, you know, they're, they're just chilling and we're basically just waiting to see the rain subside and for it to start to warm up. And this is the key here is that once the rain stop and the weather warms up and the buds actually start budding out and the growing season really begins, we need the rain to stop. 
We need the weather to calm down. We need it to be nice and warm. We need it to be relatively dry. A little bit of drizzle here and there is not going to be a problem, too much of a problem. Uh, we just got to keep an eye on like molds and mildews and things like that. The big issue is that if we have a cold snap or a storm roll through when the grapes, or sorry, when the vines are flowering, because those flowers are very, very small, they're very, very delicate, and inclement weather can really have a severe impact on our crop and the overall yields for that year. So right now, it's no big deal. Uh, frankly, I'm like, bring, bring on the rain. You know, it'd be nice to see the sun sometime soon, realistically. Uh, the biggest effect that this may have is that if it stays cool and it stays drizzly, the budding out process and when the vines actually start growing is going to get pushed back. And they're going to bud out later, which might mean harvest is going to happen later this year. So we may have a season that gets backed up you know, maybe a few days, maybe a couple of weeks. We'll see as things start to shake out and, you know, what really happens. Um, the shot across the bow for us really comes in, you know, July and August, uh, sorry, really in July when we start to see verasion happening where the grapes start to turn color and you see sugar starting to accumulate in the grapes. That way, you know, you're like, okay, we're basically you know, 45 to 60 days out from bringing in grapes. Uh, all the sparkling wine producers might be just a couple of weeks out if they're not uh, a lot closer than that. So it's something that, um, you know, we'll just keep an eye on. But right now, bring on the rain. Let's keep filling up reservoirs. Let's keep uh, getting the aquifers replenished, you know, all that good stuff. There is a lot of it that's going to run off, unfortunately, because things are just super saturated. But, uh, Luckily, there's going to be little to no effect um, as long as we get our nice kind of warm, even keeled springtime into a nice hot summer. Here's to hoping. Knock on wood. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, man. Okay. All right. Someone, this is, <laughs> this is, well, this one's kind of funny. Being that you're a wine professional, what is your go-to hangover cure when you've tied one on? and you know you're going to be rough and tumble, how do you solve that problem? All right, so <laughs> this, this is, um, I have a very strict order of operations when it comes to this. And it's very, number one, if you don't, if you keep tabs on how much, if you know you're going to be tying one on, you got friends coming over, you know you're going to be popping bottles of wine or cocktails or whatever, make sure you're drinking water. Number one, just drink water. Like go, go every time you, you finish a cocktail or a glass of wine, maybe have four ounces of water, maybe have eight ounces of water. Like just kind of keep the hydration going because that's one of the big issues. Um, and before you go to sleep, if you have an electrolyte mix or something like that, like we keep drip drops or liquid IVs laying around the house. Um, so we ha I typically will have like one of those before I go to sleep in like 16 ounces of water that I'll just kind of sit there and sip on for like a half hour or an hour before I go to sleep. Um, it's not that that's not a total preventative measure, but it does help. Uh, when I wake up the next day and I've got the headache and I'm feeling a little bit queasy, this is the order of operations. All right. This is the order of operations. Number one cup of coffee. I got to have a cup of coffee. I'm, I'm one of those. I am a true caffeine addict. I have to have a hot cup of coffee to start my day. It doesn't really matter how awful I feel. Coffee is in order. Number two is some of that electrolyte mix that I mentioned. It's grab something that's going to replenish your body with some nutrients. So it's a 12 or 16 ounce glass uh, with electrolyte mix and coffee. 
after that, if I'm feeling halfway decent, I eat something, something, anything. Sometimes I make myself some eggs and bacon and kind of just have at it. Other times it's maybe some toast with butter or like peanut butter on it. Just something kind of simple, not too crazy, but theoretically I want to have some protein. I kind of want to get my day started normally. Uh, along with that, another cup of coffee. We're on two cups of cup. By the time I'm eating, I'm on my second cup of coffee by far. Like, like we're, we're trucking along with the caffeine. After that, if I'm still rough and tumble, after I've had something to eat, that's when I pop the Advil or ibuprofen or whatever you need to knock out some of the headache. Uh, from there, I'll typically fill, if I can, I'll fill up a water bottle and I'll go for like a quick walk and I'll get, I get up and I get moving. I go for a walk, I go out to the winery, I start doing something, anything to just get the body moving because you're, you're going to feel awful, but that's probably the worst you're going to feel that day in particular. So you might as well just get up and get through it. Anytime I've been a little rough and on the struggle bus, if I just lay on the couch or lay in bed, it never gets better because you just lay there kind of wallowing. You don't really drink water. You don't really eat anything. You just kind of lay there like a blob and you just feel worse and worse and worse. You might as well get the worst out of the way and then just move forward with your day. Because by the time, if I do all of that, like line it up to knock it down, by 10, 30, 11, we're back in action. And I know some of you are gonna be like, you're still young, just wait until you're 40. Guess what? I was waiting until I was 25, and then I was waiting till I was 30, and now I'm waiting, then I was waiting till I was 35, and now I'm waiting till I'm 40 nothing's changed. It's literally the same. I just feel like there's less of a tolerance for it now because all of us as adults are busier. We actually have real responsibilities and feeling that rough just sets us back differently. At least that's what I'm telling myself because honestly, it doesn't feel any different. I don't know what to tell you. You know, just drink water, electrolytes, try and eat something and get going. Don't lay on the couch and be lazy. Doesn't mean you got to go to the gym and go for or go for a run, but at least get up and get moving a little bit. I mean, come on, that's, that's the hangover cure. That's the way to go about it. Uh, or you follow Anthony Bourdain's method, which is basically cold. If I remember right, it's cold Coca-Cola, uh, a couple of Advil and spicy Szechuan food, those three things. And I agree like hot, spicy food to like knock it out. You get yourself like some good ramen or some pho or something that you're going to like sweat. Yeah, it's, oh, that helps bar none. For sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. All right, we're kind of rattling. I'm realizing I'm rattling through these, rattling through these this week. All right, question number four. Let's get into it. What is the difference between natural wine versus organic wine versus wines that aren't labeled as such? This is a good one. And we're definitely going to tackle the natural wine thing in an upcoming episode as well, because that seems to be kind of a buzzword right now. Um, we, I think we touched on I can't remember which episode we talked about it on but we definitely mentioned natural wine uh the big difference is organic wine is actually has there's actually a certification to make organic food and beverages so if you're paying for that certification you can have that stamp on your bottle the same thing goes i'll take it one step further for like biodynamic like there's a that you can use a biodynamic uh, certification as well uh, for your wines um that's probably if, if you're really really concerned about what you're consuming the organic label is probably the best thing for you because that organic means non-gmo as well so if you're worried about gmos and and other things being used in the processing of the things you're consuming look for an organic label now the trick is is that you can basically make a wine that is organic up until the point 
that you add sulfites and then it's not. Like sulfites are a big non-starter for that. Um, it also means you are farming from an organically farmed vineyard. Um, there is a difference between farming organically versus making an organic wine. We'll get into that as a part of that natural wine conversation uh, a bit. Um, a natural wine, this is the tough thing, is like natural wine, there's no legal definition. In fact, multiple places um, have different rules and regulations as to what natural wine is. And we know this because of selling some of Brittany's rosé down in Southern California. There were three shops that she courted in particular that all said, hey, we only carry natural wines. It's very L.A. Uh, sorry, some stereotypes are true. And and uh, and each one had a different idea of what a natural wine was. One said it's it's grapes. The wine makes itself. And that's it. There's no, there's nothing else. Nothing. That is it. Like you're just letting it do. Uh, you're just a guiding hand. You put it into whatever storage containers it's going to be in, and that fermentation, that aging, pro everything just happens, and you basically just stand there and watch. Uh, another one was like, oh, you can add, you know, if if you need to add like yeast or nutrients to make sure that like the fermentation is healthy, that makes sense. Like it's nothing that is. Uh, you know, like a, a chemical that you're adding or like a real, you would think in terms of like a quote unquote additive, like you're just trying to make sure that the wine itself and the, uh, you know, process of fermentation stays healthy. Another one was like, you can't do that, but a low dose of sulfites are okay because the preser these preservatives are in everything. And there's a lot of natural things that have sulfites in them. At least that's what they said. And they were okay with sulfites. And this is all within like one like area of Los Angeles. I'm like, like this doesn't make any sense. Um, so I, I would be wary of the natural wine thing only because there's no legal definition and there's no quality standard. It's just here's our opinion on what a natural wine means or like a clean wine means. Those things don't mean anything realistically. Um, and, and this kind of is a piggyback off of the wine additive conversation we had where you know what do you consider to be like an additive and really manufacturing versus oh this is something we're doing to maintain the integrity of our wine I, there's a big debate to be had there um, so realistically if you're truly worried about you know what you're consuming from a wine perspective you're probably going to want to look for the biodynamic or the organic certifications uh, those are very few and far between. There are there are a lot of producers that practice both of those things from a farming perspective, but the wines aren't biodynamic, or the wines themselves aren't biodynamic, or the or the bottled wines not organic either because of other parts of the process where they say, okay, the farming's done this way, but when we actually make wine out of it, we have to do X Y Z to kind of maintain our quality standard. So it, it, that's kind of a tough conversation to have. Um, so the big difference is one organic wine, if as long as it has the organic certification on it, that's probably the most clear cut. Here's exactly what's going on. Natural wine has no legal definition and there's no shot that, that you're gonna convince me that it's somehow better because I've tasted a lot of natural wines that are overtly flawed and have all kinds of microbial problems uh, bordering on like spoilage issues. Um, so I have a huge bone to pick with natural wine right now, and I can't wait to get into that. And people are probably not going to like it that much, especially if they're like really gung ho about natural wine. But I like stirring the pot. 
that's going to be a fun one. Uh, when it comes to biodynamics, I, I know people have a hard time with biodynamics because it brings in phases of the moon and there is some voodoo that's kind of mixed in there. But if you look at the preparations that are done out in the vineyards from the manure and composting and the ecosystem that biodynamics is trying to create within a vineyard, you can't argue with that. There's some really great farming practices and some really great things that you can take from biodynamic farming, in my opinion, to really enhance you know the property you're working with. Is it for everybody? No. Do I require the vineyards I buy grapes from to be biodynamic? No. But you can't tell me that there's not some good stuff to be garnered from it. I know the phases of the moon thing, like astrology and stuff that kind of like somehow sprinkles its way into that. Those farming practices can be a lot and it seems really ridiculous. Um, I've had conversations about that over and over and over again with people. But what I tell folks is like, if you can set that aside and just say, hey, the actual farm stuff we're doing for farming, it's really good. And it works really well for a lot of vineyards. So I'm not going to argue with them. More power to you if you want to go down the biodynamic route. Now, if you see a wine in front of you with none of those markings on it, like ours, like ours don't have any of those certifications. What do you like? How do you figure out what's different? The big thing is typically going to be the contained sulfites label. Like that's going to, like we were saying, kind of trip you up on those other potentially three things and whether or not you're certified a certain way for like organic or for natural for what it's worth. Uh, but this is when, you know, this is why we got into the wine additive conversation over the last couple or the first couple of weeks of this month was, you know, I am a proponent that an informed consumer is a much more powerful consumer and it should be should be relatively easy for you to find out what is actually going into the wines that you're drinking. Now, when you come, when you get to know MTJ and the wines that we make and other small producers, and you can chat with them one-on-one -on -one about what's actually happening behind the scenes, it's easier, right? Because you get to know us, we can talk shop, we can get it out there and get it all of our cards on the table. If you're looking at a wine shelf in a retail shop, I mean, the best thing you can do is call their customer service line or their phone number that's probably on the back of the bottle and hope you get a hold of somebody that has that information. But you're not going to stand there for 30 minutes trying to decide, like call, making call after call after call, trying to decide on what wine you want to purchase for dinner that night. Yeah, like it's a pain in the ass. So the best thing I can suggest is that if you know you like the wine, try and learn more about it if you can from the producer directly. And if you can't, or they're very vague and they're not willing to go into detail, that's a pink flag. I wouldn't say a red flag, but it's definitely a pink flag because there's something there that they're tr maybe not actively trying to hide, but they feel as though if they spill, then it's somehow going to affect purchasing decisions, which is why a lot of this stuff doesn't end up on labels in the first place. Uh, so there you have it. Um, the best thing I can, yeah, again, offer is to know your producer. If you're really, really, really serious about it, look for those certifications, but I can tell you they're going to be very few and far between. They're going to be really tough to track down, especially on a, on a broad scale. Um, but if that's something that's important to you, then that's probably going to be the best way to go about it. Okay. Uh, oh, shoot. We got time for one more. Let's do one more. Oh, very poignant actually too. All right. So we got 
how do you actually make money in the wine industry? It's the cliche is that to make a fortune in the wine industry, you have to start with a bigger fortune. So how do small producers actually make it work? Oh, this goes back to uh, the, this was back to the February Q and a a little bit where we talked about just like great prices and the difference between like California as a whole versus like just specifically grapes from Napa. So this is the deal. And I am, I am not the smartest when it comes to business and development and, and things of that nature. I've learned everything I know just on the go. I have not taken any business classes. I don't have an MBA. I've tried to surround myself with other people within the wine industry who are now great friends and colleagues that I believe are smarter and that I can garner knowledge from or actually ask really honest questions. And that's been like the A number one thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to try to figure this out. And if I can't, maybe I can lean on somebody else, you know, and they can help fill me in on some of this stuff. So basically, this sounds really dumb and I, I sure I'm going to use some verbiage. Some, there's going to be someone with an MBA out there who listens to this part of the show and they're going to be like, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And they're right. <laughs> I don't. But it's typically a margin game for anything. It's how much money are you actually making on that product? And it's going to be something that are you going to be saying, hey, let's make a million bottles, but we're going to make a two dollars per bottle you're not this is you're not selling the the wine for two dollars but let's say you're making a million bottles of something it costs you five dollars to make it but you're selling it for 7.29 a bottle okay so you're you would think and that's more i guess that's more of like the retail side of things that's kind of a bad example actually so let's say let's say that you're you're selling a wine to a distributor for eight dollars a bottle right? It costs you $6 a bottle to make it. So you're making $2, your profit's going to be two bucks, right? This is like the most dumbed down version of economics and business you're going to find. It's going to be amazing. Uh, from there, if you sell a million bottles, multiply that by two, you've made 2 million bucks. Okay. So the volume game, right? You make a lot of something. Maybe you're not making a lot per bottle. I mean, you're only making $24 a case, but when you sell a lot of it, it adds up, right? That's that's really how you get rich in the wine industry is you make something that's got probably a smaller margin. You're not only making a couple of bucks, maybe even a few cents per bottle, but you're making a lot of bottles. The other way to go about it is kind of the more boutique or like cult wine kind of route. And, you know, when you make a very small production, if you make like us, maybe a thousand or twelve hundred cases a year, all of a sudden, let's do the math, right? So... If you're making, let's let's just for easy math, let's do a thousand cases a year, right? Times twelve. Whoops. Twelve thousand bottles. Easy math, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, times twelve. Yep. So you got your twelve thousand, right? I wanted to do the visual side of things. For those that are listening, you're this is gonna like go over your head. And I'm not that bad at math, I promise. But I was trying to do the visual aid and I messed up on my calculator and you know the things happened. So now you make 12,000 bottles a year, okay? If you multiply that by two, you're making $24,000 a year net profit. Can you pay rent in Napa on 24K a year? The answer is no. <laughs> so you either need, you need to do one of two things. One, you need to increase your overall production and get to a volume 
where you can actually make that happen. So if you're making 3,000 cases instead of 1,000 cases, boom. Okay, that's more of like a decent salary, right? Right? Uh, or maybe you have a higher average bottle price and that's where you have larger margins and you're making more per bottle, but you're making less of them. Uh, those are really kind of the two ways to actually make a living at this is you ha either have to go smaller and have higher costs and sell your wines for more to make the same amount of money or you go the volume route and you make a bunch of wine and from there, you're only making a little bit per bottle. But if you're selling, you know, 100,000 bottles and making $3 per bottle, there's 300K in your pocket uh, or whatever, the, however the math works out. And I guess the beautiful thing is, is that there's, you know, you can go through those two routes or you can be kind of a hybrid of those two routes. There's a lot of different ways you can go about it. Um, part of even Brittany's Rosé program is that those are you know, lower price point wines, our margins are not nearly as good on those. But if we can grow that label to be a little bit bigger, then it's all right, we might actually do all right with it. Um, but at 200 cases for something like Blair Payton, that's something that's it's, it's, it's a long slog to, to, you know, make that financially work right now, because of just the, you know, where we're at with growing that production, you know, for MTGA, when I started, you know, I lost money for the first few years because I didn't understand that. I, I was just like, oh, well, I paid, I knew how much I paid for the fruit and, and barrels and, and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, I kind of know what my like cost of goods were, but I didn't factor in the licensing, the permitting. I didn't, I didn't try and think of like, oh, if I was going to earn a salary or make this a full-time thing, what would I need to charge? Um, There's a lot that I just kind of overlooked when it came to making money within the wine industry and making a solid living at it. And since about 2016, 17, well, really since in 2015 and 16, we started to make some of those adjustments. And then by 17, we kind of had it figured out. And then 18, it was like, okay, let's see if we can actually make this work. And that's when we, st I started working for myself and like giving it an honest go. What's up, Freddie? So that became, you know, that that's kind of the, how you make money in, in the wine industry is you either play the volume game with smaller margins, but you make enough bottles to make it make financial sense, or you make a little bit of wine and you just charge more for it. So you have higher margins. I, that's probably as simple as I can make it. Um, there's different kinds of ways to go about it. Um, you also have to consider what your quality is going to be. If you up production versus if you stay small, you know, is it worth it to stay small from a quality perspective? I agree with that wholeheartedly because that's what I do. That's how, that's why our wines are as good as they are. And that's what's really been able to sustain us uh, as a wine business is focusing on lower production, but higher quality wines uh, rather than making tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of cases and making what is already available, you know, out and about in a broad market sense. So um, to each their own, but those are kind of the two main ways. If you're making wine, uh, to make some money in the business. So, uh, I definitely want to get more into the like nuts and bolts of like business sense in wine. I, that might actually be the time where I might introduce like my first guest onto this show. It's something that I want to do. I want to add another component of, uh, like having someone else to bounce ideas off of. And that is something that I'm for sure going to try to do, um, as we, 
continue to evolve this show uh, into the coming months. So uh, luckily, we have a lot of really great friends out here, folks that are you know, a lot smarter than I am when it comes to the wine industry and business uh, and people that I trust to give really solid, honest opinions on, whether it's the business side, whether it's the winemaking side, whether it's the sales side um, or the farming kind of things, or maybe they even have a better hangover cure than I do. Who knows? Thank you so much for tuning in. This was the quick and dirty March Q&A. Um, thank you so much for the questions in the cellar and online over the last month. Remember, if you want to have your question answered, submit it in the comments. You can slide into our DMs. Uh, next time you're out at the winery, you want us to feature something, just let me know. We'll see about getting it included in the show. Uh, thank you also so much for tuning in. I'm very, very stoked to... Uh, continue, you know, jumping down some of these rabbit holes with you all. So have an excellent rest of the week. We will catch you next time.